Good morning, church family. It is good to be with you. For those of you who don't know me, who haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are continuing our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. And one of the things that we've seen in 1 Corinthians so far is that the Corinthians are incredibly proud of their so-called spiritual maturity, which is evidence that they are the least mature church that Paul writes to. Now, isn't that true of many different things in life, is that a sense of self-confidence is evidence that you really don't understand yet what you're doing. Now, I've had the privilege for a number of years to serve as an elder, both in this church and the previous church that I had the opportunity to serve. And there have been much older, much more mature men on both of those elder teams than me. And here's what I noticed about those men. They were much quicker than I was to acknowledge that they were wrong, foolish, or sinful. And they were much quicker than I was to cry. Tears and repentance are two critical marks of spiritual maturity, which both is convicting to us, but it's also good news to us. And that's because to mature spiritually isn't about gritting your teeth and trying hard. It's more like giving up, giving in, being open to what God has for you. So the good news I have for us this morning is that spiritual maturity is possible for all of us, for normal screw-ups. We're going to look at three different aspects of this this morning. First of all, we're just going to see what immaturity is. We're going to have it portrayed for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes this to this young, cocky Corinthian church. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul... And another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? So, first thing that Paul does for these cocky young believers is he uses kind of a demeaning illustration to describe them. He says, essentially, you think that you're really mature. You're more like babies, which is why I fed you with a bottle Instead of giving you solid food. All right, this is going to be fun. Off to a good start. Feeling good. And so you can imagine the church is kind of taken back. Like, whoa, that's a little harsh, isn't it? Now, why would he be saying such a thing? Paul was careful to teach the gospel of Jesus to them. That they were righteous because of their relationship to Christ not because of who they were 
in themselves. But here's what the Corinthian church used that information to do. Okay, if we're already righteous and God loves us just as we are, then we can do whatever we want. Freedom in Christ! And they forgot the exhortation of Jesus in John 14, 15, which says this, If you love me, you will keep my commands. See, love for Jesus and keeping his commands are not opposites. One is an expression of the other. So if you say, I love Jesus, I have freedom in him, I'm walking closely with him, I love the Holy Spirit, but I want nothing to do with the commands of God, then you know nothing of the love of God. And Paul is saying to this young church that they are using their freedom wrongly. It's like they've gotten the key to someone's house, and they are supposed to be taking care of their house, and instead, they're like, freedom, and throwing a huge party there. Paul's saying, that's not why you were saved. You were saved from sin for good works. The gospel not only sets us free from condemnation, but sets us free to do good works. So that's the first thing. He's feeding them with milk, not solid food, because they still think in that way. They have that type of immaturity. And then he also says that there is jealousy and strife among them. Now, this word jealousy, it it literally means zeal in embracing, defending, or pursuing anything. We've said before, as we've looked at 1 Corinthians, that one of the most dangerous things in the Apostle Paul's mind is the thing that you are most passionate about that is not Jesus. And this church had tons of things that they were passionate about that were not Jesus. And they were incredibly zealous, which led to strife. So they were always fighting. Their small group Bible studies were not marked by warmth and encouragement and caring, but theological debates. They were throwing down. And they were trying to prove which one of them was right and which one of them was wrong on the more finer points of theology. So their church was a place of contention. And part of the reason for this, and we've seen this a number of times in 1 Corinthians and we'll see it more in the future, is that they were aligning themselves with certain teachers and placing themselves in different camps. They're still saying, I follow Paul, and another person says, I follow Apollos. And so what they were doing was aligning with one camp, and when you align with one camp, in order to justify yourself for aligning with that camp, you have to criticize another camp. And Paul's saying, but Paul and Apollos are not divided. We believe and teach the same thing. Maybe we take it from a little bit different angle, but we're on the same team, so why are you trying to divide us and act like we're on different teams and form two separate teams. Saying you're not doing that because you're mature, you're doing that because you are immature. I'm reminded of 
James's words in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So what's really driving this is not a desire to be spiritually mature, but it is a fleshly desire to be the best, to be on top, to be number one, to have everyone worship them and praise them and think that they are so great. So I would define immaturity this way. Immaturity is zealous ambition and pride, which is masking insecurity, leading to fighting and disunity. Let me say that one more time. Immaturity is zealous ambition and pride, which masks insecurity, leading to fighting and disunity. Now, here's why immaturity is so hard for us to detect in ourselves, and it is so hard for others to detect in us, because it looks a lot like being right. Immaturity, at its base form, I think, is trying to prove to other people that we are right, that we're good. It is not possible to mature as a Christian and to think that you're right. I remember as a freshman in college, I think I was the height of thinking that I was mature. I thought I was pretty great. And I had um, read my first Christian book that point. So that was pretty cool. And I started listening to kind of a renowned Christian speaker a lot, like hundreds of sermons. And I remember coming home on a mission to prove to my family, my godly family, that I was mature and they were not. And so I remember going into my dad's office for almost that entire Christmas break and sort of protesting the normal family traditions by continuing my behavior of listening to sermons and reading Christian books and writing in my journal and doing all sorts of godly things. And I thought that by not watching Elf, which I still regret, why didn't I watch Elf? That is such a great movie. I thought by not watching Elf that year that I was really taking a stand for what was godly. In that entire break, what I regret the most is that I traded connection with my family for my own pride. I left feeling great about myself, but I think that I displayed the most immaturity during that time than at any other time of coming home. Even though I was probably in some ways the most right and the most disciplined. Okay, so how do we start to root this type of immaturity out of ourselves when it's so hard for us to detect in ourselves and it's 
hard for others to detect in us because it seems like when you display this type of immaturity that you're right. Okay, you're not going to like my answer to this. I think that the only way for us to mature is for there to be prolonged and sustained deep suffering in our lives. The only way that we are going to let go of our self-righteousness and really cling to Jesus is if we suffer deeply enough that we see that we need him. That we understand, I can't do this on my own. And the religious facade... is nauseating to us because it's not doing us any good. Now, I'm not hopeful that you have to suffer. I'm hopeful that you can take a different route than the one that I've taken. But I think for most of us, we're just that stubborn. And God loves you so much that he is going to put you through pain so that you can arrive at a place where you are progressing in your walk with him in a real way. Okay, so that's the first thing, what immaturity is. The second thing we see in the text that helps us toward the path of maturity is to see what leaders are. Okay, if they're not spiritual superheroes that cause us to divide into camps, then what are they? Paul says this, starting with verse 5, going through verse 15. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, Paul starts us off with a hilarious description of the way that he views his and Apollos' leadership. He starts off by saying, what is Apollos? What is First of all, I always think it's hilarious to refer to, to yourself in the third person. So Paul refers to himself in the third person, and he doesn't say who is Apollos or who is Paul. He says, what are they? So he's saying, listen, this is how unimpressive and unimportant spiritual leaders are in the grand scheme. Don't even think of us as humans. Think of us as things. Because Christian leaders 
can't even do the thing that they're called to do directly. He goes on with his description. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm not responsible for the reality that a church was established here. Because a church is full of people who have come to Christ and are now maturing in their relationship with Christ. And he's saying, Apollos isn't responsible for your spiritual growth or maturity. All we can do is be diligent farmers, but God is the only one who directly does ministry. So if your life has been changed through this church or through that church in their day, the appropriate response to a Christian leader is yes to say thank you to them, but it's sort of like blind carbon copying them on an email that's actually written to God. They're not the one who gets the credit. They're not the one who gets the glory. We don't say, I follow this Christian leader, or I follow that Christian leader, or I go to this church, or I go to that church, or I'm in this person's small group, or I'm in that person's small group in a prideful way because we understand that God is the one who gives the growth. Now, that doesn't mean that Christian leaders, if their work is done well, is not, are not worthy of honor. But Paul says that a true Christian leader is not looking for attaboys, pats on the back, and thank yous from the church or the ministry that he or she is helping to shape and lead. They are looking for their attaboys from God. And here's what he says. This is a warning to somebody like me in Christian ministry. He's saying there is good, sturdy Christian work, and there is shoddy Christian work. He says the foundation, so he's asking us as ministry leaders to envision ourselves as home builders at this time. He says, okay, the foundation is laid. That foundation is Jesus, his work on the cross, his resurrection, the sending of the Holy Spirit. And now what Jesus is asking Christian leaders to do is he's asking us to build on that foundation. But it's important that we pick the right materials, that we pick the grace of God, that we pick the word of God, that we pick humility and bearing our own cross and not giving into the materialistic ambitions of our age. That would be like building with precious materials. It would be building with gold or really solid metal. But to grab onto sort of an anti-Bible approach, a super seeker-sensitive approach, a prosperity gospel approach, uh, I want everyone to like me approach, I'm sort of writing my jokes first and then filling in Bible in between what I want to say so that everyone's impressed with me. I'm trying to gain followers for my self-approach. He says to us as Christian leaders, that's like building a house with straw. When a fire is coming. So there are going to be Christian leaders who have huge 
successful ministries who you will see enter heaven by the skin of their teeth. There will be no reward for them. There will be other Christian leaders who have small yet unimpressive ministries who will be greatly rewarded. Because it's not how big of a house you're building. It is about what materials you are using. And so there has to be this deep humility that accompanies Christian leadership. I cannot be in this for the praise of people. I must be in this for the praise of God. I was reminded of this recently when I was having a conversation with Jordan Adams. So Jordan is a great friend and uh, has been a wonderful gospel partner for he, me in Minneapolis. And so I'm grieving and I'm excited to send him out as our first church planter from Salt City Church. But Jordan is on what I'm calling his goodbye tour right now. So he spoke at the fall retreat for Salt Company in Minneapolis, which is the ministry that, by God's grace, he helped to found. And then he just last weekend spoke in Ames at the college ministry fall retreat for the ministry that he was discipled in and the ministry that he first served in ministry in. And Jordan was saying to me that the most meaningful thing to him as he was speaking at these retreats were to have individual people come up to him and talk to him, not about how he had changed their life, but about how God had changed their life through something that he had said. And I thought for a second, that is the joy and the delight of a Christian leader. It is not when somebody comes up to you and says, I love your sermons. I listen to your podcast every week. It's not when somebody is so impacted by you, but it's when they have seen through you to God. And you see that your watering or your planting has made an impact on them because through you, God has touched their life. The Bible says that we have this treasure in jars of clay. My translation is we're crackpots. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. True ministry leaders are not trying to gain followers for themselves, but for Jesus Christ. And it is our joy and delight when you follow Christ and not us. And there's a time where you have to stop following whatever Christian leader that you admire, and you have to get your eyes on Christ and on other Christian leaders, because every Christian leader that you would ever follow is deeply and profoundly flawed. So leaders are limited, sinful servants of God. So here's what I'm asking. 
Don't worship us. Pray for us. There is so much temptation to give in, to give up, and to compromise that it will only be the grace of God that will see us through. So please pray for us. So we've seen what immaturity is, what leaders are, and thirdly, we're going to see what maturity is. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 23. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So there's three basic marks of maturity that we see in this text. The first is this conviction that my body is not my own. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. So the goal of my life is not to fulfill my own pleasures or desires, but my goal is to honor God by being open to the Holy Spirit. It is the belief that I have been invaded by God himself and that that's the most wonderful news in the world. So my job is not to promote myself, or to even do what I want to do, but the task of my life is submission. Each day, I hold my hands open, and I say, my life is not my own. My life is yours, God. It is not willfully even trying to do what is right. It is putting ourselves under the authority of God's spirit. We believe that we are God's temple. Even my body is not my own. You have no right to do what you want with your own body. We don't believe that adage, my body, my choice. We don't believe that it's our body, so it's not our choice in anything. Okay, secondly, let no one deceive himself. If any of you thinks he is wise in this age, let let him become a fool that he may become wise. Okay, this is really interesting. This gets us into the paradox that we see in this passage. A Christian is somebody who admits that they're a fool. You want to become mature, here's the evidence that you are maturing in your walk with Christ. You don't think you're mature. You think, I'm a fool in need of wisdom not a wise person ready ready to vomit my wisdom on you. I am not God's gift to the world. I am a fool desperately in need of God's wisdom, and it is only his wisdom that has been helpful to me, and so it is only his wisdom that will be helpful to you. 
So a truly mature follower of Jesus is someone who believes that their life is not their own and that they are a fool. And then the third thing we see is that this person who is mature in their walk with Christ stops boasting in men. I'm not telling you about this podcast or this Christian leader or this Christian book in a way that makes you feel like, here's me, here's you. Here's me, here's you. Oh, you haven't read that book? I have. Oh, you haven't heard of that leader? I have. But instead, we are deeply thankful and grateful for Christian leaders only insofar as they have pointed us beyond themselves to Jesus. So we don't think of ourselves as one of this leader's followers. Instead, we think of that leader as a gift of grace. We don't think of us as belonging to them, but we think of them as belonging to us. Here's how you identify a true Christian leader. They don't say, this is my church. I don't believe this is my church. They believe that they are servants of God's church. Not mine, possessive. Mine, I must lay down my life for you. And so we don't boast in men. Now here's a tremendous example that we get from the Apostle Paul of living out what he's teaching here. One thing to notice is that as Paul grew in his relationship with God, we see that he became more and more aware of his own sinfulness and more and more aware of God's greatness. Let me give you a few examples throughout Scripture of Paul's psychology. Look at 1 Corinthians 15.9. He said, For I am the least of the apostles, and unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Ephesians 3.8 Though I am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 1 Timothy 1.15 the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Okay, so then what did Paul do with this knowledge of his deep sinfulness? I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm the least of all the saints. I'm the worst sinner on earth. Did that cause him to wallow in self-pity or make everybody look at him? No. Philippians 3, verses 13 through 15, he says what he did with that information. He said, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. So Paul's maturity caused him to have an accurate self-perception, 
which was that he was a fool, which led him to utter dependence on God and gave him clarity about the calling that he had from God. His submission and admission that he was sinful gave room for the Holy Spirit to come into his life and defined the very purpose of his life. Here's what God wants for you. He wants you to be filled with joy. He wants you to be filled with laughter. And when you are proud and full of yourself, you don't laugh anymore. And the way up is down. It's to admit that we're fools. Now, why would we do that? Kind of breeze past this part. It's because you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. The motivation for this is not guilt. Oh, I'm so immature. I'm so messed up. It's freedom. You are holy. So there's this text thread going with my family right now because we're planning on going and seeing Handel's Messiah at the Basilica, which I'm really excited about. I love classical music. And have you ever been to the Basilica of St. Mary's in Minneapolis? It's just absolutely beautiful. I can't wait to hear the Hallelujah Chorus again there. But when you walk in that place, you get this feeling from the architecture that God is here. And even unbelievers who are in that place for a concert whisper. They talk quietly. Why? Because they have some sense that this is a holy place. Here's what Paul's saying. You are far more holy and special and beautiful than that place. God's spirit, the spirit that hovered over the face of the waters in Genesis, who created the universe, is in you. What do we do with that information? We have a house guest inside of us who is perfect. So do you know what you're going to feel? Conflicted. Because you're not a perfect house guest inside of you. So you have two choices. One is you try to exalt yourself, try to beef up your pride, make yourself look good, and know inside that you are a huge liar. Or you bow. Submit. Give in. See, spiritual maturity is possible for all of us because all you have to do to be spiritually mature is admit that you're not over and over and over again. So you do that with me. And yeah, it'll be humbling, but then it'll be followed by great joy. Let's do it together even right now. Um, Jesus... Man, I look at this passage in that first section, what immaturity is. My life is often marked by that. And I don't want it to be. I want to be a humble servant of you. But I find myself often proud of my spiritual accomplishments 
or boasting in the knowledge that I have. And God, would you show me and us how foolish we are so that we could have joy and mature and be wise? Forgive us for our pride that is nauseating to the world and ruins us. And fill us with your spirit, God. We want to be open to that and submissive to him. In Jesus' name.